were through lots of searching behind the scenes, able to, to work out that Orel Mengala, who had been expected to start, wasn't on the field, and he had been replaced by number 20, Philip Forster. Now, this was all well and good once we got our heads around what had happened, until 10 minutes into the game when, when the Bundesliga provides you with not only the lineups and a little graphic in the top left of the screen, but those graphics then morph into the average positions of the Nice. On Sweet. The Very useful. Gives you a, an idea of the, the early tactical impl implications of the game. The only problem was Stuttgart's number 23, Oral Mangala, was part of the average position graphic on the screen, even though he was not involved in the game, had not touched the ball, and had certainly not been involved in running around the pitch for the first 10 minutes. So it did make me start wondering just how heavily we should rely on the analytics. Which well, come, come on, come on. No, that's not, that's not analytics. Is that, that's someone clearly not changing the numbers over. That, that's, that's nothing to do. The analytics, absolutely, we use it all the time. It's, of course it tells us, but if you haven't got the right players on the graphic... That isn't the fault of the of the um, of the the analytic that you're looking at. It's of but, the person putting the numbers in, Stephen. But, but surely they're but surely they're using some kind of way of tracking Orel Mangala's contribution to the game. And the fact that he's currently sat in the dressing room receiving treatment, yeah, would suggest that his average position should have been somewhere underneath well, the stand. Clearly, he has a, an influence. <laughs> he has an influence on the team, even when he's not playing. That they thought we're going to have to stick him on the ground. But again, presumably that 23 was number 20. They're just. But no, that, that's the mistake of the people putting the numbers in. That's not the mistake of the model that you're looking to, to apply to the game, it's, is it? Come on, Steve, you know you're, you know you're I would say partly wrong, but you, you, you are wholly wrong. What Stephen is doing here is, is blaming the robots is, for what is, is very is, much isn't it? Yeah, human It's error. like blaming yeah. the referees for the laws. <laughs> oh, let's have a go at someone who's put the wrong number in. Oh, it means the model's completely wrong. I think you've shot yourself in the foot there, Stephen. Goodbye. It, this also feels uh, rather like not only the ending to one episode, but a perfect preamble to another episode. So um, uh, let's use it both times. I think that's that's quite meta, but it is, the, you know, it's the Christmas New Year period. So basically, nobody will be listening to either of these things so it's we fine do, we do very well over christmas and new year Rory. is it just we keep going yeah basically yeah there's not enough podcasts out there for people to fill their podcast schedule with so that's where we step in well in that case with that in mind this is set piece many the podcast where four friends talk football over food i'm hugh ferris joining me are rory smith father stephen wyeth son and andy hinchcliffe holy sh what a left foot. Um, the food is, uh, does anybody have any food tales that they'd like to tell? I've been banned from eating crisps in front of Nicola, my wife <laughs> in brackets. Apparently, I, I keep saying, well, it's it apparently something about the size of my jaw. It, it, it makes the crisps crunch more, which I clearly don't believe. But now if I want to have crisps, I have to do it in the downstairs lavatory with the door closed and the dryer on. So it masks the noise of me chomping. I don't think it's particularly loud, but I, I am now not allowed to have crisps in front of her. What's going on there? Is it because you're eating Golden Wonder Chinch, notoriously the loudest sounding crisps? I, I just... Crisps, that's that's nostalgia it, for an advert in the 1980s. It's in the crisps. They're going to be crunchy. Then, to be fair, though, she'll what she did once was say, right, you chew, and I'm going to record it. I'll chew. And I'll record me and we'll look at the sound and the sound difference, to be fair, was enormous. But now I have to scurry away into the downstairs lavatory. I don't even need the toilet. It's just that I've got a bag of crisps, got to chomp them down, make as much noise as I want. And then I can come back into society. Do you drink the crisps? Uh, I, I, surely everybody at the end 
drinks crisps and do you crunch them to make them smaller so you don't choke on them as well you know if they're bigger no. bigger like tortilla chips what i tend to do is eat them by hand out of the bag and then right at the end when you feel as though you maybe got a quarter of the bag crunch them all up and then basically tip them in doesn't everyone do that that is flawless technique chinch my I, I took great pride from seeing my three-year-old son drink some crisps for the, for the first time yes. a few weeks ago and i thought i've taught you well he, he realized that but now the problem is we, we now have is that he, he's basically drinking everything just to make it just to eat it quicker so he'll have a little bowl of cereal dry cereal as a little snack in the morning before he has his breakfast and you'll see him sort of pick the first few Cheerios out and, and eat them. And then he gets, has like half the bowl left and he just picks it up and, sh and yes. sort of pours it down his gullet. <laughs> this is a much more efficient way of eating. Uh, so that is the food, I think. The football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be the second part of the, the big two-parter. But, yes. the the, but the big question is, will, will this part be as good as the last part? <laughs> Can yeah. it ever re Can recapture it the magic? <laughs> Not entirely sure. But it is part two of our chat about nostalgia and how it affects our view of contemporary football. Also later, we finish our festive offering with an out-of-context reacher passage. This is an Andy us all down by the fireplace in a wing-backed armchair and a large brandy before regaling us with a completely random snippet from the novel series about a retired military cop. Um, you can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. Um, as I mentioned last week, we're keeping this part of the show to a minimum, mainly owing to the time constraints forced onto us by having to spend almost every day reading the ever-changing restrictions of whichever tier that we're in. Uh, we do have time to read this, though, from Christopher Orr in Chicago, relating to our recent spate of sponsorship offers, which, of course, started with a hardware shop in Jordan. And it relates and pertains to part of the conversation we had about this last week. In case you weren't aware, says Christopher, Alan is a brand of hand tools most widely recognized for its wrenches. Known generically as Allen Keys or Allen Wrenches, they are named for the Allen Manufacturing Company that originally produced them. The brand is today owned by Apex Tool Group, which manufactures Allen branded L-key, folding and T-handle style products in both Dallas, Texas and Shanghai, China. So in addition to your official Jordanian hardware supply sponsor, perhaps SBM should consider naming an international hexagonal screw and wrench partner to further penetrate the US and Chinese hexagonal wrench and football fan demographic. This episode of Set Piece Menu brought to you by Allen branded hexagonal screws and wrenches because there's ultimately only so many ways to get talk. It's got to be, it's got to be, <laughs> got to be somewhere good. in the very world. Good. There's got to be an Allen wrench out there somewhere. We need to, we need to track down Allen wrench. My really name's Wrench, Allen wrench. Hang on, Chinch, just so you know, obviously, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this at all, but I am obviously a a super sleuth investigative journalist. I am um, yeah. in the sense that if you do 15,000 words on CFG, that counts as an investigation these days. Um, I'm just going to do um, a Facebook search for Alan Key. Why is, why is there's Rory, loads? Alan why Wrench, no, put Alan Wrench in. Rory is typing his, typing at his keyboard like that meme of a cat doing it with his paws. <laughs> Stephen, it's because my keyboard is precariously perched atop a cushion because my Wi-Fi has been a nightmare in trying to record these podcasts. So I have to do it very delicately. Alan Wrench. With a W. With a W. And yeah. Is it Alan, A-double-L-E-N? Oh, there is, no, there's, there, it's an A-N, but there is, an, there is an Alan Wrench who's a senior lecturer at Spirit Studios at the University of Salford. There's an Ooh. Alan Wrench who lives in Stoke-on-Trent. There's an Alan Wrench at Canal and River Trust Bolton in Hartford in <laughs> Mid West Cheshire. There are, there are loads of Alan Wrenches. That's just, I'm surprised at that. I am surprised. I mean, to be honest, I think there's more Alan Wrenches than, I mean, there's, there's an, 
you could doom stroll on Alan Wrenches for hours. There's one in Springfield, Oregon, uh, one in Coventry. Is there a Philip? Is there a Philip Crosshead? <laughs> <laughs> uh, think, so, do you think he'd be Philip or do you think he'd be um, <laughs> Phil? Phil Crosshead. No, there's a Philip Crossroad who must spend oh, his entire life. so close. He must spend his entire life just wondering what would how things would be different <laughs> if he just gone another way. Um. Would, would we be able to find somebody who marries a head and is already a cross? Oh, Philip, you mean like a double-barreled head? A double-barrel. Phil Cross dash head. Dash head. No, just oh. lots of Phil. There's lots of Phil crosses. Oh well, they're always still as well. Be. They need to meet a young lady called Head. And uh, see how they get on. Uh, no, Philip Flathead. Chris, stop it. Christopher Orr in Chicago, as ever. Thank you very much indeed. So uh, let us return to our conversation about nostalgia. Perfect for this time of year, as most parts of the world hark back to what Christmas was like in the year 2019 and before. I trust that you all had an enjoyable festive affair. Who knows whether we did or not. It's before Christmas in our world. But we are now returning to the conversation about nostalgia, having spoken about footballers and players and how we are prone to perhaps nostalgia-sizing, which still isn't a word, Rory, um, about those players. Now we're going to talk a little bit more in the wider context. So we spoke briefly about systems and styles being more the defining factor of a team potentially now and less about the individual. So my question to get this going is, is style a thing that we hark back to because of, as we mentioned with Johan Cruyff last week, and I kind of hinted at, uh, with Socrates, there is a sense, isn't there, that there is just this harking back to a almost standard definition, slightly sepia tinged style of yesteryear that we feel like has more joy about it. Is the central problem with with nostalgia not not so much the matter of it, the sort of the, the stuff that it deals with, but the nature of it? So I always think that basically what what Whenever we have these conversations about, and it, it's, it's a slightly harsh example, but the, like the, the against modern football movement, which has a lot of kind of a lot of the tenets of which I think we probably all agree with. There's certain things that we would we would like to 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 sort of see struck from the game, or certain things we'd like to see returned to it. But is it basically not all just a big a sort of? Is it basically not all just a quite complex way of saying that we want things to be? as magical as they were when we were children and to, to engender the same feelings we had when we were kids. And that what matters isn't so much that the game has changed, although it obviously has in many different ways, some of them good, some of them bad, but that we've grown up and therefore it doesn't have the same, none of it has the same effect on us as it would when we, when, as it would if we were young, basically. That's the, that's the, the core issue of nostalgia that you're not, you're not nostalgicizing Hugh for for the thing that you're talking about. You're nostalgicizing for the way you felt about the thing that you're talking about, and that I think is is the broader issue. And it's it's something that le leaps out at you when you watch when you watch footage of old games that a lot of them are rubbish, and that's because your modern eye is actually used to seeing something that's you know played at a much higher pace with a much greater technical level, all, all that stuff we talked about last week, the kind of base standard of football, the production values are all much higher than, than they were in the 70s or the 80s. But there is something atavistic and something romantic about seeing stuff that made you feel a certain way when you were younger 
that you just can't resist. And I think there's a great example of this, that Miguel Delaney, who's not a friend, friend of the podcast, because he doesn't listen. What? But he is a friend of mine. <laughs> Miguel, Miguel watched the Liverpool-Newcastle 4-3, the first one, back again. Miguel doesn't support either of those teams. And what struck him was not only that the, pit, the pitch itself was dreadful. I mean, it was proper sort of, you know, brown bits in the penalty areas stuff. But the actual technical level of the game was really bad. But most people would tell you that that, that, that game is incredibly special. It's the peak of the Premier League. It's exactly what you want football to be. But if you actually look at, at the, the component parts of that game, that it's nothing compared to even an average Premier League game now. And it, what, you're, what you're kind of yearning for, what you're harking back to, is not a thing. It is a feeling that you had. So I don't know if it's to do with style particularly. I think there's certain elements of, of balance that we, 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 do, we do yearn for in a much more legitimate way. The idea that the game is much more hierarchical now and much more predictable and you know, the super clubs have got far more power and that there's a feeling that before, in the before times, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. But even that I think is slightly, is slightly mythical really. That you, it's not like in like the 1986 season that every team went into it thinking they could win the league. Like it was, it was suddenly Liverpool or Everton or maybe Man United. You know, it was, and there have always been the story of football is there have always been teams that have been more powerful and more successful and more rich than the others. And I think again, it's more to do with a, a lot of it is to do with how we felt at the time, the generation that now gets to define kind of what, what is good and what is bad that gets to kind of dominate the culture, which is thankfully our generation, the best generation, the greatest generation. Um, get, <laughs> Generations is, of the future will realise by looking back on us and thinking, yes, they were the best generation. Those lads who, who left the EU and did nothing about a pandemic, they were great. Um, so Hadley Freeman, who writes for The Guardian, writes about quite a lot about the 30-year the 30 theory of culture, which is basically culture is dominated by the tastes of people who are in their late 30s, early 40s, trying to rediscover or make trendy again the things they liked as kids. And I think that's effectively how nostalgia functions, that we are nostalgic for a period that meant something to us, but not because of the things that actually happened in that period. It's literally just the way that they made us feel, because when you're a kid, stuff feels more magical. Uh, it is no surprise that this is going out around Christmas for example. We talked about Diego Maradona when we were discussing individuals last week and we lost Paolo Rossi recently as well, who was the, the top scorer, the, the golden boot and golden ball winner when Italy won the World Cup in 1982. And obviously the, the game that really he made his name in was the 3-2 the victory for Italy against Brazil, the final game in, in the group stage, which knocked Brazil out and, and sent Italy on their, on their path to winning that World Cup. And in the aftermath of his death, the, the highlights of that game appeared on, on social media a lot. And anyone who clicked on those and would have watched that game, which is held up as being one of the all-time great World Cup matches, will have been struck at the relatively pedestrian pace at which this brilliance was taking place. Like the second... Standards, Rory. Don't look at me that... Don't look at me no, that... No. I was I was agreeing with you. The second Brazilian goal, did no one make to tackle? Is it is genuinely extraordinary that is it Falcao just wanders to the edge of the box, then sort of rolls a shot in, and literally there's no for all that that you know that's the kind of the era of great Italian defenders and Gaetano Chirea and all that. No one gets even anywhere close to him. It's pathetic. The the I think I felt on almost all of the goals in that game, 
why didn't one of the defenders just clear that? Yeah. That was there to be cleared. Why, why has nobody done that job? The job that, you know, why is no one throwing themselves into that challenge? So not only was it a demonstration, another demonstration of how collectively the game has, has moved on as well as, as we talked about last week, individuals, but that like anything with us, do we think when we, when we nostalgicize about things, we sort of, we view them a little bit in, in slow motion, don't we? Do our, do our memories a bit like, you know, a bit like your dreams, things dif- happen at a different pace. So you kind of forget that, that things have, have moved on in, in that regard. And, and, and that seemed like to be a, a perfect demonstration to me of a game that, that is one of the all-time great World Cup matches because of how it made people feel at the time and what it meant at that exact moment. But if you compare it to the football that we're used to watching week in, week out now, you wouldn't stick with it for very long. But the, the, the point here is, the, is, the, is what Rory was saying, not only just then, but also last week about the, the sound of the Beatles and how it's not necessarily as technically adept in terms of the hardware that's used to record it as modern music. And yet it feels right. It feels legitimate. And it's the same thing with how you watch those games of yesteryear, whether it's from our lifetimes or something that our generations past would have told us about. And part of it is told in the significance, as you say, Stephen, because of the significance of the event. We just a few weeks ago talked about what makes a good game and significance played a large role, <laughs> a significant role in that. But is there not just that, that sense that it, it's the feel, it's the look, it's the the design of the football sometimes. It's the kits. We we joke about Chinch's Chinch's backside size and the and the size of shorts. There is a generational shift as you go through them about the, the size of the shorts. You can chart the eras of football through the either bagginess or tightness of a footballer's pair of shorts. And these things are, are immediately identifiable. And if you therefore have that identification point, you are very easily able to decide for yourself instinctively if that's an era that you hark back to. If you watch the, if you watch the, the games of the 1980s, and just take that example, Steve, 1982 or, or 1986, which of course we've been watching a lot with the death of Maradona recently. You just look at those kits and you immediately snap back to that moment in your life because of the look of how the thing appeared. If you're a little bit older, like Chinch, you'll think about the 1978 World Cup, the ticker tape, it was the look, that standard definition, slightly, well, for, for 1978, Pursuit World Cup. These are the identifiable moments that make us think about those points. So it's not just the players, it's not just the systems, it's not just the tactics, it's the feel, it's the sense of it all. And watching back those games just help us think back to that time and that's what Rory said, is that you feel close to that because of the emotions associated with it. You're making very good points, Hugh, but can you leave the size of my backside out of the conversation and my age? I know it's really, really hard for you all to not do that because it's the first thing that seems to, or the, the, the two things that come to mind when you, you think of me. But can you, can you stop doing it? it? I find it offensive and hurtful. The nostalgia is not actually for what you watched necessarily. It's not, you're not making a value judgment on how good anything that you watched is. You are, you are yearning for, you know, when you talk about things like the kits, it's not that the kits in the, in the eighties were, were a vast amount better. It's that they felt much more magical to you because, you know, the yellow of Brazil was much brighter because you were a kid and there was, there was that aura. You're tapping into something much more, much more personal, much more kind of, uh, what's the word? 
I don't know. More, Why don't you ask Rory, Hector? Much more significant <laughs> to your... Does it look like Hector's talking? <laughs> it yes. does. So Rory has uh, brought, brought his dog into his bedroom, sat him on his knee, slightly changed the aspect and tilt of his laptop screen to make it appear like Hector is delivering these words of great wisdom. This soliloquy. Also, he does also, love... Hector did yawn immediately after Chinch's <laughs> most recent contribution as well. So he really does seem to be in sync with what's being said. The, so, I mean, I know it's a point I've, I've kind of made it a million times, but I, I don't think, I think we, we too often forget. We, I know it's a point I've made a million times over the last, the last two episodes, but I do think we, we too often, the nostalgia discussion is, is basically a false one. That it's more about stuff we felt than it is about what it was like. That because in, in any number of ways football's improved immeasurably and not just kind of on the pitch but off it as well. But we all miss the we all miss the feelings of our youth, basically. And it's that's the the actual Hugh, as you will know, as a um as a as a classically classically educated man, nostalgia has within it a degree of pain. The algebra bit is pain. And that that's the that's the significant thing that you are you, you are noting an absence of something. So I think for, for much of it, it's it's to do with what, what you feel like, what you felt like at the time and what you feel like now. But there are certain aspects of it, I think, that are legitimate. And and we touched on one of them last week, which was the kind of the magic of an individual, which maybe has been lost a little bit in an increasingly systematised game. And the other thing is that sense of of possibility that I think is being eroded in modern football, that there is there is a sense that, that modern football is much more predictable, much more, much more hierarchical, much more structured than it used to be. Where, where these strange things, you know, strange things did happen a little bit more, more easily. Where there was a more of a kind of where things were more fluid, I guess, in terms of of teams being able on any given day. Although there was a structure in, in terms of you know which teams were richer and which teams were more powerful it did feel like things were less set in stone by finances, less dominated by that because the gaps between those teams were inherently smaller. So, you know, Liverpool's wage bill in the eighties would have been bigger than anybody else's, but not by as much as Man City's wage bill or Man United's wage bill is bigger than, you know, Southampton's now. And that I think is, a, is something that we, we legitimately um, nostalgicize for. I'm genuinely being hypnotized by Rory stroking off his dog. So I'm glad that uh, it's being tilted back up. It's, 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 it's quite mesmerizing. Is it, but, is it relaxing? <laughs> it is relaxing, but I need to really concentrate uh, because otherwise like uh, Hector, I will be yawning anytime that Chinch speaks, but that, just very quickly about the, the, the system and the individual, which is something we touched on last week. Does that system not always need an individual to elevate it to, to, to last through the generations? I just, I just wonder if Guardiola's, Barcelona needs Messi. The incredible systems of Ajax and, and the Netherlands in the 1970s needed Johan Cruyff. You need to kind of pin it to that individual, but that's probably a, a point I should have made last week. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think you, you need the, the, the individual. The, it's only possible with individuals of sufficient talent, but I think increasingly, I think we're seeing maybe systems that will be remembered more than individuals will be remembered. I don't think at this point in time... So it's managers kind of, even, it's ma managers you might be yeah, more than... Yeah, possibly, yeah, that you might, you might find that maybe, maybe that's it, maybe that, in fact, that's probably a subject for another podcast, that we're maybe, this, this might be the golden, the golden age of managers in a way that, that we haven't maybe quite recognised yet, that we have transferred so much of the power and the, the magic to the manager, that that's, that that's what we'll remember more than the players. I, I think when you, when in 20, 30 years' time, I think plenty of people will, will remember Mohamed Salah and the brilliance of, of this... Of, and the brilliance of his time at Liverpool, 
I think more people will remember the brilliance of this Liverpool team. I was just about, I was just about to say that. Are we going to get to a point where the team is remembered? Can you have a successful team without a standout individual? Or will yes. there always be? Yes, you can. Yeah. Although how long, how, how long they last is interesting. So we, 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 were, we started this whole conversation by thinking back less than a decade. Mm. That, so they've, they've lasted to that degree. But are we going to be remembering teams like that were based on systems famously from times gone by? Because we had the conversation about Argentina being Maradona's team in the 80s. But, you know, in the 70s, it was, it was Cruyff elevating it. We didn't necessarily talk about the Dutch without mentioning that as being part of it. But I think, I think that's probably last week's... But there's a really interesting point in there. So with that Dutch team, and I think the Hungarian team in the 50s is really great, a really great example as well. With that Dutch team, we, we lionise the individuals. And if you, but if you take Cruyff out of it, is it, and obviously Cruyff was a really special individual figure in, in football history. Do we remember Nations and Johnny Rep and Ari Hahn and Robbie van Rensenbrink because they were great individuals? Or do we remember them because they were obviously talented individuals, but they were in a great team? So I wonder if there's, if there's actually a, a, a blurred line there where it becomes impossible to separate. Chinch says, can you have a great team without a standout individual? So think of that, the Magic Magyar team of the 1950s. Now, Pushkas is the name that's most famous, but there were plenty of others. Nando Hidaguti, uh, Laszlo Kubala, like were these standout, these maybe weren't standout individuals, maybe they were just in a brilliant team. And they then went on to play Pushes for Real Madrid and, and Kubala for Barcelona and stuff. They went on to play for other brilliant teams. But maybe we remember the team through the, through the individuals. And it's maybe... That's how you to, tell a story. That's how you tell a story. Yeah, but to an extent, it's impossible to... In football, it's impossible to, remember, to separate the two, ultimately. You can't separate the brilliance of the individual from the brilliance of the team and vice versa. Well, Manchester United's great teams in terms of their dominance in Europe as well as at home have been collective rather than individually driven best law in Charlton in the late 60s and it feels as though when it all came together for Alex Ferguson it was because he had Rooney, Ronaldo and Tevez playing as that front three that neither at that point Ronaldo wasn't the standout individual it was a that was a, a collective effort so we we either all live in or have lived in a city where that that is true of the of the outstanding teams of of those of those times of those yes. years so what but I, I still think the story is told it has to be told if it is told generation after generation it is told through an individual and in the 60s it's not told through the front three there it's told through busby yeah and the modern version is told through yeah. ferguson so uh, whilst we were talking about the last 10 years being framed in the manager funnily enough to, in an effort to find an, an individual to tag it to when the team perhaps was you know, more, a more significant contributor rather than just an individual, you have the ability to tag it to, to Busby or to Ferguson. And the, and manage, the manager stands in for the team, basically. Yeah. The, the that's, manager, but that's not yeah. to the detriment of the team. It's often because yeah. the team is all like like Klopp's Liverpool. The, the team is, is greater yeah. than some of its parts, but, but also full of very, very impressive players. Yeah, Hugh's, Hugh has struck on a really important point there, that the, the, the nostalgia is driven by the nar narrative and whatever the peg is that you can hang it on gives it its longevity. Can I ask Chinch a question? Chinch, when you're sat up on the gantry these days in your new life, 
watching. I never, I never sit on a gantry, Steve. You know me, I'm on my toes constantly. But sorry, bouncing around, annoying the commentator with your constant fidgety movements. Yeah. And your jibber On the gantry. Yes. And yes. you always on talk back to the director, demanding the next graphic to back up the point that you're about with to some make. tremendous analytic yeah, model. Do, yeah. do you and the players of your era watch the game now and think, I know often players would say they'd love to be they'd love to be playing now. You know the the fame, the the riches that that come with it, the glory. But do you watch the game now and and think about how you and your compatriots maybe wouldn't have been able to play football the way that it's developed? I, I do feel because obviously I'm relatively you know twenty years of, and at the end of my career, the the science was coming in, the fitness levels, the weight, everything was kind of gearing towards what we're really seeing now so what I see in the modern player is probably something that I was kind of starting off doing at the end of my career so I, I think we could have because hopefully you'd have the talent I don't think the the modern left back is has developed so much that I simply couldn't play that position anymore I probably enjoy playing the position a bit more because you get more attacking freedom because the way the game has changed but I, I don't I don't miss playing I don't kind of hanker for oh I, I wish I could go back 30 years and, and be playing now you have your time and you hopefully enjoy it and do the best that you can under the circumstances that you play but I'm not one to say oh it was so much better back in my day and I'm so much better than Jamal Lewis at Newcastle I, I know these players as Roy we talked about this about how you have to appreciate the level of talent these guys have even though when you're watching them analyzing them and talking about the mistakes that you make you maybe in your head think they're not as good as you probably were. But again, people that are analysing my game back in the day would have picked up all these problems and faults that I had as well. So I don't think much has actually changed necessarily. If I'm looking at left-back and the, and the role, yes, the role has maybe changed and developed. You have to be fitted to play that. You are given more attacking freedom. But I don't think there's been a giant leap forward in the technical ability, maybe the tactical understanding of football and the role. I think that's probably the biggest step that we weren't or I wasn't heavily involved in understanding really what my job is and what everyone else's job within the team tactically is. There wasn't that much of that going on, but that has been a huge development. So, but you could easily catch up with that. And if you've got a brain and you could get into that kind of, of way of thinking and into that flow, you could comfortably do that. But I'm very careful about, I, I don't think I've ever said, certainly wouldn't say in commentary, even off air, I wouldn't say he's clearly not as good as I was because he wouldn't be playing professional football in the current Premier League if you didn't have a, a huge amount of talent. Then when you notice how quickly Jamal Lewis was the name that came to, to Chinch's lips then, where he was trying to just think of an example of somebody who wasn't quite... It's only because I, I watched Newcastle recently and Jamal Lewis was playing left-back for them. I could have gone for the other team. Could easily have done that. Could but easily you, have gone for Anthony Robinson. I was going to say, I Jamal. Not, not quite as quick to, to your mind. And the, the, Just on, on that, Chinch, and it's a slightly different question, and it may well be the answer is nothing, but nostalgia often Rory spoke about the the pain part of it but it often softens the hard edges doesn't it 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 can be a little bit misleading you remember the very essence of it is that you remember the good stuff because you are yeah. you are enjoying the remembering of it but I've actually stopped going back here if this is the point I've stopped watching the big match because in my head the footballer football and footballers I watched back in, I thought they were amazing and as a kid I just thought it was one I watched the big match and it's appalling. The pitches are absolutely dreadful. The football. And I think if I keep watching this, I'm going to actually ruin what I enjoy about when I was a kid watching football. I'm going to take it all away because clearly if you go back and watch it, it, it looks. And again, then you start to feel very differently. You had a really good feeling and it takes you back to being a kid. If you watch it and you see how poor it is, 
it, it takes all that away. And this is where nostalgia sometimes falls down, because if you were to actually practically think about an element of the game that we are nostalgicizing about, that we would transplant and put into the modern game, not players, because we've had that conversation, yeah. we've, we've, we've rendered it redundant, but... If there is a part of the game, whether it's, you know, a different size of shorts, what, what is there? Is there anything that you would actually want so much that you, you are thinking about it in, in such emotional terms in the way that we have just been describing? What would you bring from that time to the modern game? Would it ever have a place or would that undermine the whole point of nostalgia, which is to have that memory in that place and staying there? Absolutely. And the fact yes. you can't move it means yeah. that's exactly why you love it. I, I think it'd be very... What could you what could you bring across? Because everything we say improved in inverted commas and football again, how it how it is now and how sanitized it is and how how much of a product it is, how much of a team game it is now. I'm not sure there's too much that you could bring across. Anything that would actually span those decades and actually work in the modern game. I can't think of too much. The larger kids, beards, just, larger beards. Well, but we're seeing the, the the beard has come back, and the the long hair and the ponytail is starting Headbands, to come back in a little bit Alice as well. Bands. There's not enough headbands in the modern game. There isn't enough, but players, are, you know, we're starting to see players wear Alice, but they, they're, they're kind of this throwbacks to maybe what happened in the 80s and 90s. Steve Foster at Luton with his with his headband, remember his kind of sweat headband. So you're seeing players wear it, but that's mainly because they've got long hair. But I, 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 I don't know. Steve Foster was protecting a scar. I think he had a scar, didn't he, on the front of his Well, he, he says he was. He says he was, <laughs> he but was it, was, it, it was a high fashion item. Protective but it, clothing. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't know what you other guys think, but I, I, there's not too much in terms of the, the kits were, the kits weren't great. They flapped about all over the show, especially size extra, extra large shorts that you, they were never going to look, never, they still look snug, but they were never going to look good, were they? But even just watching the, the early Premier League years, it seems absolutely light years away. And if you say, well, what could we take from that time? Is, there, is it, a, I don't know, is it a feeling? Is it an attitude to the game that we can maybe bring across? But there's not much that I think would probably work in the modern game. The one that comes up consistently as, as being the, the, the thing that people look, look upon from the past that they'd like to see in the modern game is that ability for players to commit acts of heinous violence against each other. That, that that's what you want to see more of in no the not game, me but that's the one you hear oh, yeah, yes. in terms of yeah. our football was better when that wasn't a red card offense the most recent example of it being john lundstrom more yeah. or less cutting a brighton player in half and yeah. chris wilder's post-match reaction was the game has moved on maybe i need to move on with it which effectively interprets mm -hmm. as I'm going to have to start reminding my players that you're no longer allowed to cut the opponent in half. I mean, that's never really been permissible and is a way that football has but probably it, moved on. Well, yeah, we, we, we do say that, but it does depend. Take it from my own experience. It depends on which end of the challenge you are. If you're the one snapping somebody, maybe you can hark back and say, oh, I wish we could have more of that. If you're getting snapped, you probably feel a little bit different about it. Exactly. I think I think the broader thing that people would probably want to have back, and Steve's quite right that the the one thing you do get a lot of is kind of that kind of when men were men nostalgia for for a form of football that was yeah. quite brutal and not very attractive and was willfully dangerous. It's supposed other, to be a contact sport. Is yeah, that's the phrase you hear a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot better now that it's not. It's not really a contact sport in that sense. That that has improved it. It's enabled 
attacking players to kind of thrive. You, it's strange that you never hear any nostalgia for the days when you were allowed to pass it back to the goalkeeper and pick it up. <laughs> um, the, I think the one thing that people do miss is legitimately is the sense that that everything was was less preordained, that you could, that it wasn't as determined by money, that it wasn't as set in stone, all that stuff. How much of that is a false memory, though, I don't know. But if you look, if you look back through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, for the most part, the biggest teams won the league. And you would occasionally get shocked a little bit more frequently than you do now. And the other thing you have to say is, is it worth the payoff? Is it, you know, is the improvement in in pitches, in the overall standard, in kind of the, the conditioning, the intensity of the game, the talent level, all that stuff, is that all worth if we've had to sacrifice a bit of unpredictability for that, is is that not? It's maybe it's maybe not ideal, but it's not a bad trade-off, is it? And and growing up in the eighties, as three of us did, um, that was a time where we might grew be thinking up in the about. 80s, thank you very much. I grew up. I got older in the eighties. You went from <laughs> went from thirty to forty. <laughs> but that was clearly at a time in which there was huge amounts of violence off the football pitch. There was massive yeah. incidents of racism society was not a necessarily particularly happy place and so the stadiums were crumbling the stadiums, stadiums were dangerous were and dangerous unpleasant. there were fires there was deaths in stadiums obviously so that's when we we've got to be careful about that that element of nostalgia softening the hard edges of what, of what the whole picture was um and and the final point probably should be something along the lines of nostalgia is enhanced by the lack of access to repeat viewings so it's harder to be nostalgic about something that you can have at your fingertips and watch on demand over and over and over again. But if you think about to those times, I just a couple of weeks ago, I was at Sports Personality of the Year, which used to be called Sports Review of the Year. And you would watch it at the end of the year to watch back something that you probably hadn't seen since it happened in the summer because it wasn't available to you at any other time. So you'd be reliving those moments genuinely sometimes for just the second time. And if they were important to you emotionally or nationalistically even, those would be the moments that... And, and that was why it was such an important program to a lot of people. Now you are reliving events during a year, which you've been able to watch countless times and don't need to necessarily watch sports personality of the year to enjoy, because they might even put them on demand or online those features straight after, or even prior to that. So the preponderance of modern football on any number of platforms also makes it less likely for us to think as emotionally intense about something because we are able to dilute that with each passing viewing of it if we are thinking about that first game that we went to as a kid mine was in 1987 that game happened and i have never seen it since and if i googled it i doubt i'd be able to watch it again my first game was at highbury in the mid 80s 85 86 season i think um because my cousin was an arsenal fan and we were staying with uh, with her family at the time and me and my brother got knocked off. We were sat on the on the bars in the in the clock the clock end at Highbury. And when Arsenal scored, we we were knocked over as the crowd surged forwards. And I remember a fan, as my dad helped us back up to our feet, saying, Oh, no need to be upset, lads. Arsenal are winning. Like, I'm not upset because of the goal, I'm upset because I nearly got trampled to death. <laughs> Happy slightly, days. Yes, I was going to say a slightly, <laughs> slightly morbid way to end our conversation, but uh, but certainly not 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 a time, not a football stadium that I necessarily have nostalgic fondness for. 
Um, now, thank you to all of you uh, for your contributions on that two-parter. But as promised last week, when we use the fact that we're providing a seasonal two-parter <coughs> to avoid us having to provide you with a bare minimum of a normal standalone episode, we have a chinch offering to send you smiling into 2021. Buffalo Ewan Haig has emailed to say this. Dear gold, frankincense, myrrh and uh, donkey, season's <laughs> greetings. Thank donkey. you. For, yes. I'm presuming that's donkey, really. Just always presume, Chinch. Oh. Thank you, says Ewan, for making 2020 just a little better. I have a give a book, leave a book box at the end of my front path. And lo, a Christmas miracle in it this morning was The Sentinel by Lee yes. Child and Andrew Child, attached to pages 67 and 68 for your reading pleasure, which seemed to feature former Manchester United and West Brom midfielder Ronnie Woolwork in his <laughs> playing career. <laughs> Best wishes for Christmas season. Have a happy new year. That's from you and Hague in Chicago. So all wrapped up and beautifully presented. Here is another edition of Out of Context Reacher. It's simple. Chinch loves Reacher and he wants to bring it to those people who are yet to appreciate the novel's unassuming charm. Rory, was one of those people, he's been completely won over. That's so not true. We will sit back, and say, if I keep going, it is. We will sit back, bellies a little full of the latest microwave meal that we've been eating because we didn't get to see our family at Christmas and therefore weren't sent home from anywhere with leftovers and enjoy the latest edition of Out of Context Reacher. Right, now all great voiceover artists and I, I consider myself one of those now like McKellen, Obama, Pasquale. I've, I've studied the text, uh, I've assessed the characters that are involved, you know, Reach is clearly in there and in essence, he's me. So I'm, I'm halfway there. But can I put this out of context, Reach, into context or not? You don't nope. want me to? No. No, nope, that's not how this works. Oh, uh, well, it's it's a two-way conversation, basically. So you're going to hear two and, and there is the narrator, which which is me. It'd be hard to tell, but me and Reach are very, very similar. So the narrator and Reacher will be very, very close in terms of, of vocal range. But it, 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 this is good. This is good. I like this. And if this has just been picked at random, it works beautifully. But Ronnie Warwick is in there. Here we go. The guy was wearing a black suit with a white shirt and a narrow burgundy tie. He was older than Goodyear. That was clear. But how much older was hard to tell. Reacher guessed 10 years minimum. But the guy had the kind of podgy face that resisted wrinkles and didn't sag. His head was bald and freshly shaved, so there was no indication of where his hairline would naturally be. He was slim and he looked fit in an unassuming middle of the road kind of way. The guy sat at the table. He took a black notebook from his jacket pocket, then gestured for Reacher to get up from his spot on the floor and join him. My name's Wallwork. It's early and I'm not a morning person, so let's get straight to the point. Why did you attack those men last night? Where's Detective Goodyear? Reacher said. He's here somewhere, Warwick said, but I'm handling this case. Oh, tell me, the fight at the diner, what started it? Those cretins did. Reacher folded his arms. They came after me. I gave them a chance to walk away. It's not my fault. They were too stupid to take it. Why did they attack you then? You're the detective. You figure it out. There's no reason you can think of, aside from stupidity. Okay, so I should put this down as a random, unprovoked attack. Unprovoked, yes. Random, no. They thought I was working with some insurance guy. They tried to warn me off. Why would they do that? You're the detective. Fine, don't help me. But you should certainly help yourself. Listen, I've just been to the hospital. You banged up those guys pretty good. They won't be able to work for quite a while. Won't be able to do much of anything. They're not happy about that. They're looking for some kind of payback. Talking about pressing charges. Let them. Nothing would stick. Walworth shrugged. 
Maybe, maybe not, but it would lead to a trial. There'd be no way around that. The courts are pretty backed up around here. Could be a while before you appear. We'd have to keep you locked up in the interim. And as a jury to think it out, they'd all be locals. Do you think they'd like the idea of a hooligan blowing into town and beating on their own? And there's another thing. The men have already had their photos taken by a professional. Multiple shots. They've had all kinds of swellings, bruises, cuts. They look bad. They didn't look great to start with. I'm not disputing that, Jack, but get a few mothers on the jury. Get them imagining you're doing that kind of damage to their sons. You'd be taking a gamble. Reacher said nothing. Of course, there is another path we could take. These are not the smartest of individuals. I could probably change their minds, get them to drop all this talk of criminal charges. But if I did that for you, I'd need something in return, such as the previous incident, the one involving Rusty Rutherford. That's a porno name. Detective Goodyear was left with the sense that you weren't being entirely forthcoming, Jack. Level with me, and I'll see you get to walk out of here. And the jazz hands off. Jazz hands. Did did you play him as Alan Bennett on purpose? Uh, It started out as kind of a a Blackburn supporter. And then I I really got into the character I felt. Kind of halfway through, I I really threw myself into it. And I did turn into Alan Bennett, which is no bad thing. Uh, To you, and thank you very much indeed. Any out of context reach passages that you would be like, that you would like read by Alan Bennett. um, I'm not sure that Alan Bennett would make a good Midwest detective. Do you? I think we should should give it a go. (laughs) Yes, at least try. How do you know unless you try? Setpiecemenu at gmail.com for that in any correspondence. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Andy and Stephen and to you all for listening and of course your support over what has been for so many a particularly troubling year we're very grateful that you did indeed continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule in 2020 we'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed and here's wishing you all the very best for 2021 yeah I, well I mean this is a bit this isn't kind of you know hilarious post show banter but that I think that's important it's, it's been a everyone's had a really difficult year and it's been a, hopefully we've we've helped make sort of an hour a week a bit easier a bit less boring um and certainly talking to you three clowns has been has been basically my only social contact so thanks to you three (laughs) so basically nonsense has provided you and we hope many others with a little bit of continuity just it's just something for it's just the warm embrace of complete stupidity and here of course we uh we rush headlong into 2021 expecting everything to return to normal and for us to never have to have any sort of conversations like this ever again no god no this this, this has been like this for years can't we just keep it like this though i think it works quite well doesn't it we're keeping our distance from each other i know it's meant to be two meters but i think two miles works a lot lot better still a bit bennetty there chinch i'm I'm sorry i'm still going (laughs) yeah two two meters is fine but two miles is a lot lot better Deirdre, do pass me the social distancing cream. Oh, Jack Reacher, you're a naughty boy. You headbutted him right in the face. He's got it. He's, no, it's all over his face.